Well, as we come to the preaching of the Word this morning, I invite you to join me. Take up your copy of the Word, if you have it with you, and turn there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, as we read together. Hear now the Word of the Lord. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren... You have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of Light and sons of the day, we are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious, loving, all-wise Heavenly Father, As we are gathered as one people in your holy presence, we come now to the preaching of your word. We are thankful for your word, for it is perfect and it is truth. As creaturely descendants of Adam, we confess that we don't easily comprehend the deep truths of your word, nor do we always find delight in your ways. But in Christ and by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, we have new desires For we are new creations in Him. Help us, we pray. And open our eyes to the glory and wonder and beauty of Your grace. Help us to both understand and apply the truths of Your Word. 
Help us to be sensitive to the particular and individual applications we need to embrace and bring to bear in our lives. Show us our sin. Lead us to repentance and establish a more earnest and robust and lively and joyful belief in and reliance upon the gospel, for we would see Jesus. This is our desire, and this is our prayer in his glorious name. Amen. You may be seated. As I've already mentioned, and you may have noticed the the subject, the title of the message this morning is concerning the doctrine of sanctification. And as we consider sanctification this morning and seek to understand better this biblical term, one common question that comes to mind is, is, is sanctification something I do, God does, or is it both? And as you as you begin to study this, this concept and read the biblical texts that provide the instruction we need, the answer to this question may not be immediately obvious. On the one hand, our sanctification is clearly the work of God's grace. It is rooted in the triumph of Christ over sin and death and is actualized and made evident in our lives by the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, We are commanded in Scripture to press on, to work out our salvation, to obey, to do this, and to not do that. So which is it? And we should add to that question other questions like, why does it matter how we understand sanctification? And how is sanctification related to our salvation? What are we to do? with regards to our sanctification. And so as we go through and try to answer those questions today, feel free to take notes. Write down some questions. Challenge what is proclaimed here. I confess up front that I will state a very clear and hard position that if you go back and read some of the leading lights and theologians, the way they speak of sanctification may seem to be at odds, but I also encourage you to read all of what they say regarding sanctification because sometimes the words that they speak are used a little bit differently than perhaps I use them here. And I don't think there is much disagreement. So I'll attempt to address these questions this morning, but, but I, I need to confess up front that the subject of sanctification is enormous. At one point, I was almost overwhelmed at the breadth of information available on this subject, both from orthodox and heterodox perspectives. There's so many large volumes. How many large volumes, both from the orthodox and heterodox perspectives that have been written concerning this topic and this doctrine and pursuing holiness and seeking to exposit the concept and build up the church, but I don't know how many there were, but it was an enormous number. There's much, much written But, mercifully for us and for you, this series is entitled Basic Theology. And so there will be no intermission required in the midst of this sermon, nor will I use a lot of obtuse terminology, or at least not without providing some definitions. The goal in this message is for all of us to possess 
a biblical understanding of sanctification and live the blessed lives that God has given us in Christ to the praise of His glory and honor. And so it's always good when we're talking about concepts and terms to provide a definition as we attempt to understand or learn or enter into a profitable discussion, and we should certainly do that with the term sanctification. So let's start with something that I really like to do in the middle of a sermon, you probably know this by now, which is to ask the children who are working on their catechism this question. Children, what is sanctification? Just blurt it out. Thank you, Ryan. Anybody else want to try? Good. Sanctification is God's making sinners holy in heart and conduct. Anybody want to try to prove it? Prove it? What are the proofs? These are the proof texts in our catechism. I'm looking at these children, and they're just intimidated to speak up. Our proof is found from 1 Thessalonians 5.23 that we read just a moment ago. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless, blameless into the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The shorter catechism provides this answer to the same question, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And let me say at this point, while I certainly agree the shorter catechism answer is more thorough and precise and helpful, I also love the children's catechism answer. We could spend the rest of the afternoon pondering the depths of that one short sentence. Sanctification is God's making sinners holy in heart and conduct. And so as we read these short catechism definitions, which are really just distillations of scriptural truths, we need to see that the concept of sanctification is not one of sin being totally eradicated, for that would be to claim too much, or merely counteracted, as that, that would say too little, but it concerns a divinely wrought character change, freeing us from sinful habits and forming in us Christ-like affections, dispositions, and virtues. We work from our sanctification. We don't work for our sanctification. It is God who makes us holy in heart and conduct. And there is something about this truth that is contrary to our natural inclinations. So let's keep this in mind as we begin answering some of these questions. Most of us know the satisfaction of crossing something off the to-do list. We look back on a neatly mowed lawn or freshly folded laundry or that paperwork that's been hanging over our heads finally being finished or some other completed task and contently sigh, contentedly sigh, it is done. We've done it. Now we can rest or move on to the next thing. And given this disposition, it's easy to turn even God's law into a to-do list. It's rather tempting to look back on an act of obedience and act as if that neatly, that, and act as if we have done something in keeping that point in God's law. We, 
we say it is finished to our holiness. But have you ever noticed, if we're considering this lawn metaphor, that it's those lawns that are most easily kept up that tend to be the ones that get mowed and that are more beautiful. And it's those lawns where it involves difficult work, too much work on our part, that tend to be the least attractive. And this, and this is related to why we naturally come down hardest on our sins, which we are least tempted, and seek to justify or explain away those which beset us. We like to get things done, and so the deeds we can do bring the most satisfaction. The problem is that God's law is ever before us, and nothing we find there is optional. There is always more to understand, apply, and grow in. We are never done. We are never done in our sanctification. Nonetheless, we want, we want something we can measure up to, and we like thinking we can fix ourselves We like to think that we are not all that bad and that God's grace is perhaps akin to a springboard or a shot in the arm or a nudge in the right direction. Or we may even err in the other direction, seeing our sin as that which is too overwhelming, excusing it as a part of how God made us. And so we fail to exercise ourselves in the means He has given to us, to build us up and strengthen us in faithful Christian living. We need to understand that sanctification is a lifelong process, and it is the work of God's free grace where the Spirit is working in us to renew us wholly, completely, body, soul, and spirit after the image of God. And so we are enabled more and more to mortify sin and to live unto righteousness. Now, this may seem strange, But perhaps it's a helpful analogy to see this as the Spirit working the grace of sanctification in us, giving us spiritual, mental, and motivational muscles, if you will, muscles that we are then to righteously exercise in our lives. And so we work out that sanctification that has been worked in us. It is not the other way around, nor is it our work plus the Spirit's work, equal our sanctification. No, the Spirit works and enables us more and more to die to sin and to live unto righteousness. And so the question is, why does this understanding of sanctification matter? Well, first, by suggesting that we, to some extent, sanctify ourselves, this cooperative or synergistic approach runs counter to the fundamental biblical teaching that salvation is by grace alone. Reference Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Such synergistic teaching often can have profoundly negative consequences for the believer. Those who hold a synergistic view of sanctification may only be able to understand that they need to try harder or do more This, in turn, can lead to a sense of hopelessness that despairs of any real progress in the Christian life, which then often leads to doubt concerning their assurance of salvation. Conversely, when these folks do sense progress within themselves, they may be tempted to pride. Such arrogance can tend to then undermine the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone and lead to sort of a works righteousness 
Doubtless, there are many evangelical Christians who pay lip service to the biblical teaching and understanding of sanctification while secretly placing their trust in their good behavior. And this is but one ditch that we can fall into if we fall short of a biblical understanding of sanctification. Others, recognizing that sanctification is by God's grace alone, may fall into the ditch on the other side of the road. Their persistent temptation has been called quietism, the belief that since sanctification is the work of God's free grace, there is therefore no need to expend any effort ourselves. Such thinking can lead to indifference towards sin in their lives. Others are so suspicious of falling into legalism that they regard any proclamation of the biblical expectations, those, those oughts, those imperatives that we find in Scripture, as forms of incipient works righteousness. Instead, they try to extrapolate a doctrine of sanctification entirely from the concepts of justification and adoption, and in so doing, they embrace an impotent form of once saved, always saved, professing Christ with their lips, but their hearts, and thus their lives, are far from Him. Scripture is filled with imperatives, with oughts, and go-therefores. And any doctrine of sanctification that obscures, minimizes, or dismisses the admonitions is at best incomplete. And this is where some of those theologians and teachers and writers have used the term synergy in a slightly different way. I think they would agree that with all of this, they're, they're just trying to protect the oughts and the imperatives and the go-therefores in Scripture. And moreover, the New Testament does not present sanctification as simply a matter of our receiving new information. It's not head knowledge only, or of having a new point of view on things. Rather, it is inevitably connected to the working out of Christ's death and resurrection in the life of the Christian. The question then is how do we affirm these two equally important scriptural truths that sanctification is first to last a gift of God and also teach that the believer is called to work. As we meditated on the passage from Philippians 2 at the beginning of this service, Paul combines the call to work out your salvation with fear and trembling with the recognition that it is God who works in you to will and to do according to His good pleasure. This is a matter of divine empowering of human action, not cooperation or synergism. The paradox of sanctification lies precisely in the fact that as we press on and work out, that we come to realize our utter dependence upon divine grace. In his work, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, John Murray writes, it is imperative that we realize our complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit. We must not forget, of course, that our activity is enlisted to the fullest extent in the process of sanctification, but we must not rely upon our own strength of resolution or purpose. It is when we are weak, we are strong. It is by grace that we are being saved, and as surely as by grace we have been saved. We are not keenly sensitive to our own helplessness. If we are not 
keenly sensitive to our own helplessness, then we can make the means of sanctification the minister of self-righteousness and pride and thus defeat the end of sanctification. We must reply, rely not upon the means of sanctification, but upon the God of all grace. Self-confident moralism promotes pride and sanctification promotes humility and contrition. End quote. In answer to what is sanctification, we see then that sanctification is monergistic and not synergistic, which is to say that it is God's work alone that effectually works sanctification in us and not a cooperative effort where God does part and we, can, we contribute the other part. But we also see that God not only makes us holy in heart, but this holiness is to be found also in our conduct. We are called to exercise ourselves in the change that God has wrought and give expression to those new Christ-like affections, dispositions, and virtues. In answering why does it matter how we understand sanctification, we see that a deficient understanding of sanctification may lead to any of several errors, legalism, quietism, self-righteousness, pride, moralism, despair, and loss of assurance. And truth be told, the list goes on and on. And the list of ways that people have misunderstood, therefore misapplied the doctrine of sanctification is quite extensive. But let's turn now to the question, how is sanctification related to our salvation? Since sanctification is the work of God's free grace, we need to remember that grace never leaves a man where it finds him. Grace always transforms the sinner into a saint, into someone holy and set apart unto God, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 Given this scriptural truth, it leads us to consider a very hard truth. And that truth is that every saved sinner, every true Christian, has been given a desire for Christ-like holiness. If you don't have this desire then I urge you to call upon Christ that you may be saved. Pray that the Lord will open your eyes to your sins and show you your need of a Savior. Do you have a genuine desire for holiness? Or are you content in your sin? For it is impossible to be justified and yet not have God set you apart unto Himself and given you a calling to holiness. And if God calls you to holiness, you will begin to possess and grow in a desire for holiness. This is inescapable. One answer to the question of how sanctification is related to our salvation would be to say at every point. Just as we find reference to sanctification throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, Sanctification touches the life of a believer from his new birth to his entrance into glory, from beginning to end. And that brings to mind those two other Asian works, does it not? 
those Asian words that we find at the beginning and the end of the Christian life, justification and glorification. We often refer to these biblical terms, justification, sanctification, and glorification, and we study them and speak of them as if they are discrete, separable parts. And while I would agree that they are distinct definitionally, experientially, and temporally, and we need to keep these distinctions in place that we not fall into various errors, justification and glorification are inseparable from sanctification. But what do I mean by this? I mean that those who have been justified are sanctified and are being sanctified, and likewise those being sanctified will surely be glorified. The chain can't and won't be broken. While justification is found at the beginning of the chain and glorification at the end, sanctification is throughout. In our children's catechism, we read that, read that justification is God's forgiving sinners and declaring them to be righteous. Justification is a one-time legal judicial act by God whereby He declares us to be righteous thus freeing us from the penalty of the law. Justification does not impart any righteousness into the believer or create any moral change. It is something God does outside the believer, not inside. In imputing Christ's righteousness to us, God reckons us to be righteous. He views us as righteous and accepts us in His Son. And since in justification God deals with His people in terms of Christ, our acceptance and standing as righteous before God can never change. It is neither diminished nor enhanced by our behavior. Another way to say this is that the first link in the salvation chain is anchored in Christ, our sure foundation. And just as we understand that we have been saved and are being saved and will be saved, we understand that we have been justified, are being sanctified, and will be glorified. But we'd also be understanding sanctification biblically if we said that we have been sanctified, are being sanctified, and will be sanctified. Paul exhorts the church at Corinth in the sixth chapter of his first letter, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Here we see Paul essentially equating justification and sanctification. There is no clear separation in the terminology we might refer to this use of sanctification here as positional sanctification. Since Paul was addressing sins in the church at Corinth, some of which were ongoing and heinous, the believers there were nonetheless sanctified. He even opens his letter with, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Every believer, therefore, regardless of the degree of personal holiness, is equally justified. That is, he enjoys the same positional sanctification before God in Christ. At the other end of the chain, we find glorification. This is our objective and our sure end. This is where we will experience total separation from sin's power and sin's presence. 
Here we find the ultimate end to Christ sanctifying His bride, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5.27 And as we gather in worship, we come to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to spirits of just men made perfect. Perfect. Complete. The work of sanctification is finally accomplished. And so we can see this end as perfected sanctification. This is a glorious end of our sanctification, which we will only know once we have died and gone to be with the Lord. And in between between justification and glorification, we find the whole of the Christian life is one of progressive sanctification. This is where we grow in grace, and the gospel is applied and lived. This is where we are in our daily walk with the Lord. While it is truly wonderful, wonderful to ponder the moment of our justification and to know the hope of glorification, our day-to-day experience is found in the realm of progressive sanctification. This is where we labor and love and laugh. Sin and repent, mourn and rejoice, offend and forgive, receive and give, and worship the Lord our God. And God is pleased to use means throughout this entire process. We become holy as we read His Word and begin killing the sin in our lives by the power of the Spirit. As John Owen wrote, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Day by day we repent and confess to God the Father and we turn away from those sins. We die to the old prideful self to find our rest in Christ and share in His incredible love. A love that we do not deserve with all His people. We obey the words of Christ. We love His law. And we delight in His guiding hand. We become holy by living in the light of His truth. We pursue holiness in community with a local body of believers, encouraging and holding to each other while following Jesus. We raise our children to revere God's holiness and to pursue it for themselves. We teach them that sin brings forth death, but Jesus gives life. We live open and honest lives in this community, boasting in Christ alone. These are signs of our sanctification. This reflects how Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I'm going to just depart for a moment and following today, I hope to send out an email to the entire congregation and encourage you to listen to a message that Pastor Lovett preached about a year ago on covenantal sanctification. I think it helps to complete our understanding in a very beautiful way. And as we go through this life, living day by day, submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit, this is a process that leads us to and equips us for glory. As J.C. Ryle reminds us, Heaven is a holy place. The Lord of heaven is a holy God. The angels are holy creatures. The inhabitants are holy saints. 
Holiness is written on everything in heaven, and nothing unholy can enter into this heaven. Even if you could enter in heaven without holiness, what would you do? What joy would you feel there? What holy man or woman of God would you sit down with for fellowship? Their pleasures would not be your pleasures. Their character would not be your character. What they love, you most probably would not love. If you dislike a holy God now, why would you want to be with Him forever? If worship does not capture your attention at present, what makes you think it will thrill you in some heavenly future? If ungodliness is your delight here on earth, what will please you in heaven where all is clean and all is pure? You would not be happy there if you were not striving to be holy here. Or as Spurgeon put it, sooner could a fish live upon a tree than the wicked in paradise. End quote. When we turn to the text of Scripture, over and over again we see God calling His people to be holy and that He is the one who will make them holy. This is certainly true as Paul writes the church at Thessalonica. In Acts 17, we read where Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue, and for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and be raised again from the dead, and declaring, this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And as he preached, some of them were persuaded, including a great multitude of the devout Jews and the Greeks. But there were also Jews who were not persuaded, and they became envious and collaborated with evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob and began the ugly work of persecuting the new believers. Thus, the church there was firmly established in the antithesis. The true church always finds itself the target of the enemy's fiery darts. Sometime later in his apostolic and fatherly role, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica and he has much good to say to them. In chapter 1 he writes, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believed. In his familiar pattern, Paul wrote this letter seeking to shore up the church. He reminds them. He reminds them of what Christ has done and who they are in Christ. In chapter 2, he writes, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. This effective work of the Word of God in the lives of believers is a part of the process of sanctification. 
This is grace received through the Word of God. And so, as the seed of the gospel had fallen on fertile ground in the hearts of the Thessalonians, Paul and those with him not only rejoiced at what Christ had done, they longed to see them in person. They wanted to see their progress in grace. They wanted to see the evidence of their sanctified lives for themselves. (coughs) And so when they could stand it no more, In chapter 3, we see they sent Timothy to visit them, to build them up and to encourage them in the faith. And Timothy returns and brings back good news of their faith and love. But as a good father does with his children, he not only commends their progress. In chapter 4, Paul urges them to continue their progress, writing, Finally then, brethren... We urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God. And by the way, it is not a sign of critical dissatisfaction to exhort your children as they grow up and to point them to the next challenge and how they might do even better. It is an acknowledgement of the old axiom that if you aren't going forward, you're going backward. And this is what Paul is doing here. And to this exhortation, Paul adds the reason, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And so as we read this letter, we see that God has set these people apart unto Himself. He is making them holy. They are, as are all of us, in the process of sanctification And knowing the particular temptations that surround the the church in Thessalonica, Paul provides guidance in how they are to continue their progress in becoming distinct from their pagan context. They are to avoid sexual immorality and deal honestly with one another. Another way to put this is that they are not to participate in these aspects of the ungodly culture around them. And then Paul returns to commending them and reminding them that of that which they already know, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And this is great. But there's one way in particular that the Thessalonians still needed to grow in love, and that pertains to their work ethic. And so he writes, We urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. And so are you getting the sense that Paul is writing the Thessalonians and telling them that since they are being renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are being enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness, that here in chapter 4, he is providing some exercises that they need to strengthen their spirit-wrought muscles. Paul is providing pastoral counsel. He is loving them by telling them what they need to hear. He is urging them out of complacency and into a faithful walking in and by the Spirit. And he continues this exhortation in chapter 5, which is the text we started with. So bear with me for a moment as we consider this partial paraphrase. You have been, Dear Thessalonians, you have been taught that the coming of Christ will be sudden and a great surprise to most men. You know this because our Lord has said, 
Watch therefore, for you do not know what the hour, what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And when the Lord does return, it will be terrible for those who are not ready, for those who are found sleeping. They are in darkness, but you all are sons of light and sons of the day. Watch and be sober. Put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For we are not appointed to God's wrath, but unto salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this brings us to the answer to our final question. What then are we to do with regards to sanctification? Or said another way, just how do we work it out? We've already seen that sanctification is the work of God's free grace. He is making us holy in heart and conduct. But we have work to do. And it is at times hard, uncomfortable work. It is a work that is contrary to the desires of the old man. But the good news is that it is also a work that we do not do alone. So as we continue to work our way through chapter 5... First, there is this outward work that we are doing in the context of the covenant community, which we see in verse 11. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. This outward work is a work for everyone, for little ones and for old ones and for everyone in between. No one is excluded. We are called here in this one verse to comfort and to build up. Apparently the Thessalonians are already doing this, and yet the exhortation is not to rest, but to keep doing the work. And as we see this exhortation, let's take care not to overly soften the word translated comfort. In addition to comfort, it also carries the sense of calling upon by way of exhortation, entreaty, instruction, admonishing, encouraging, or providing consolation. So the way we comfort one another is always going to be situation-specific. We may need consolation from a brother, or we may need admonishment and instruction. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is true and fruit-bearing comfort. And then the meaning of the word edify here is perhaps more clear. It means to build up, to restore, to repair, to promote growth in Christian wisdom, affection, grace, virtue, holiness, and blessedness. And note that Paul connects the application to what this means. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. But not only is this work for the pastors and the elders, it is our corporate responsibility. Paul continues, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. 
See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for both yourselves and for all. This is the working out of our sanctification corporately. We all have blind spots. We all have needs. We sin. We stumble. And we lose our patience with one another. And so we also have a corporate working out to do. This is something we should not despise or dread or avoid, but it's something we should desire and pursue. Paul then turns to the inward work, but not exclusively so. We need to always remember that as we practice these things personally and exercise these spiritual muscles individually, we are also edifying and building up the body corporately. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Consider that list. Even as Pastor Lovett prayed the pastoral prayer this morning, this is going on in my mind. Can you imagine the beauty, vitality, glory, and public testimony of a church that is maturing in every one of these exhortations? What if it was regularly said of this church, of heritage? Those people seem to be always rejoicing and joyful. Or, now that is a praying church. They pray continually, and they even pray over the smallest matters. Or how about, I've never seen those folks from that church grumble. In fact, they seem to be thankful no matter what their circumstances. What would life be like if we all walked in the Spirit and never quenched His leading or His counsel? What if we truly fully and from the heart embrace the full counsel of Scripture? What sort of decisions would we make if we consistently ran them through the grid of Scripture? What if we stood so fast in our faith that we constantly held to what is good and were enabled to flee everything evil? Would that not be glorious? People of heritage, let's not be like fish living on a tree. To be enabled more and more to mortify sin and to live unto righteousness for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is our calling in grace. This is the Christian life. This is sanctification. And so Paul closes his letter here to the Thessalonians with the familiar, beautiful an instructive benediction, and then asks for the prayers of the church and exhorts them to greet one another with a holy kiss and charges them to read his letter to all the holy brethren. And I encourage you all to do so as well. And so as I close, and in light of this message, in spirit willing, with fresh ears and encouraged hearts, hear and receive now Paul's benediction to the Thessalonians from God's holy word. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
and make your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Our gracious God, you are holy and you have called us to be holy, even as you are holy. And so we are utterly thankful that our sanctification is the work of your free grace. We pray, therefore, that you would be pleased to do a radical work of holiness in us. Lay upon us the sting of sin wherever we are grieving the Holy Spirit and quenching his work in us. Stir us up to love and good works and sanctify us wholly. Make us fit for the kingdom work you have called us to here on earth and make us fit for the kingdom which is to come. This we pray in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.